0: It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. There's a new release from the Seller Music Group, and it's called First Move. It is the debut album for drummer Aaron Sieber. This recording captures the music of such important artists as Charlie Parker Charles Mingus, as well as legendary Jerry Allen and Mulgrew Miller. Sieber's quintet on this particular album includes vibraphonist Warren Wolf, alto saxophonist Tim Green, pianist Sullivan Fortner, and bassist Ugana Okeguo. On that note, thanks for joining us here, Aaron, on All That's Jazz.
1: Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So I, I thank you for taking the time to talk to us about the new release, which again is uh, your, your first uh, as, as a leader, uh, a debut uh, album for yourself. But before we get into the album, I'd like to talk a little bit about yourself so that our listeners can learn a little more about you. When is it in life for yourself that all of a sudden it dawned on you, you know, one day I'm going to make a living and have a job as being a drummer.
1: Oh, uh, that's good. Yeah, well, I, I guess I hope for that every day. But uh, when I was in high school, I decided that music was my favorite thing that I loved to do. And I knew that I had to pursue it as a career. I didn't know what it meant at that time. I had no idea what anything meant in terms of being an adult, but I knew that it was the thing that I loved. And, and so I just kept with it, and it's been working out, knock on wood.
0: So you're originally from, uh, the, what, the Washington, D.C. area? Yes. And where did the drums come into your life? Were you influenced by a family member, or are your parents musicians, or were they?
1: Uh, I have a musical family. No one, no one was a professional musician in my direct family, but uh, everybody played different instruments. My brother was into jazz before me and he kind of was always trying to get me to to join him and play music with him and when I was younger my cousin was moving and they had to get rid of their drum set so they offered it to us and from there I got more and more serious. I I had played piano when I was even younger and clarinet but drums really something about it, it I just was taken by them and really really enjoyed them the most and so here we are.
0: You know, it's always fun to explore this type of thing with a musician because it's interesting to where that moment in life comes to where you think, wow, this is this is it. This is me. This is what I do mm-hmm. inside and out. Who was probably the the most influential drummer that sort of spurred you on?
1: Well, wow. well there there were so many great drummers in the school system that I that I went to. Uh, and different, you know, there were all these older drummers that I, I, honestly, I feel like I learned from from so many. There, there was this drummer named Sam Rame who was in the classes above me. There were some great drummers that I used to hear, Chuck Red and and Lenny Robinson, who were two great drummers in Washington D.C. And I used to hear them play at the Kennedy Center every year. But I'd have to say there were so many different people that I'd hear them and just get more and more infected. By the you know by the drug of of jazz you know every every person I heard I was like oh I like that and then I heard someone else and you know some people would be like oh no you got to do it like this so there's kind of a combination of influences you know the first recordings I heard were Max Roach and when I heard Max Roach it was over it was just I I couldn't believe it some of the things that I was hearing and I didn't even really understand anything at the time but I was just thought it was so incredible.
0: What about jazz? Where 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 did that influence come in from? Uh, you know, why didn't you end up being a rock star, so to speak, or mm-hmm. maybe uh, in some classical orchestra?
1: Yeah, well, when I was younger, I played all sorts of styles. I was in rock bands and funk bands, and and I played classical percussion as well. But for some reason, when I, when I played in jazz band or I'd play music with friends, we would always be more into improvising. and and jamming rather than playing specific parts and it just felt more natural to me jazz is a little bit looser and you can sort of get away from the rules and and explore things and be a little bit more creative at least for me i'm sure you know people can be creative in any avenue but for me jazz really opened the door to me and uh, made me feel like i had sort of an identity rather than different styles where i felt like i was trying to just fill the part
0: it's interesting that you say that because jazz is one of those things where you have a little more latitude. There's always that improvisational aspect of it. and that appeals to a lot of people as you're developing a musician because then you can go off and just jam on something and and it feels good. And mm-hmm. there as I've said before, there there are no bad notes in jazz. They're just pearls of great music.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely.
0: You then went on to uh, study at Purchase SUNY, and mm-hmm. uh, you uh, focused on uh, jazz drums. Uh, what was that like?
1: That was great. I it was uh, got to study with Kenny Washington and John Riley every week for four years. Got to meet a lot of great peers and musicians, and get to know. Uh, some of my favorite musicians that were on the faculty there and study with them and it was a really great environment for learning and I feel very fortunate to have been able to attend that school and I also went there for my master's last year as well and yeah school's a great opportunity to just you know take a step back and just try to like learn as much as possible and make connections
0: so is that where you made that connection to make the move to New York, which is obviously the mecca of jazz?
1: Well, I think I made the connection before SUNY because I knew if I was at a school near New York, I'd already be, yeah, I'd be so much closer and exposed to it. I'd have be able to go in there and then after graduating, you know, know some people. Moving to New York from Purchase was a great move because I knew so many people already, you know.
0: Was there someone that gave you that first start or that break while you were in New York?
1: Yeah, well, when I moved to New York after a few months, uh, Spike Wilner at Small's Jazz Club gave me a uh, a gig every other week for as a leader for maybe four or five years. Through that gig, I was able to meet and call tons of people and uh, have a lot of people hear me play. I was more exposed people could listen on the live stream so I met tons of people because that's sort of just sort of the hub of the New York City jazz scene in a lot of ways the small scene but there were other people that that gave me great opportunities Warren Wolf who's on on my record of course he brought me to Switzerland right when I moved to New York and a lot of cool things began happening as it as as things happen when you move to New York there's just so many opportunities
0: well, you know, you you have this ensemble uh, in your quintet that are, you know, kind of today's who's who in the jazz world. But you had associations with all of them prior to this recording, uh, isn't mm-hmm. that uh, the the case? Uh, as you mentioned with Warren Wolf, but then you also uh, were associated at one point with Sullivan Fortner. Where where did you meet up with him?
1: Uh, I met Sullivan. On a gig at Old Venue called Fat Cat in in the village, I played with him with uh, this great trumpet player, Greg Glassman, and uh, we had a really great time, and, and then I started hiring him for my band and trying to call him for gigs. He's almost never available. He's he's probably the busiest piano player in the world, if I had to guess, but uh, occasionally I, I was able to get him, and I was very lucky that he was free to make this this recording
0: and then Tim Green uh, is someone that you had played uh, numerous times with as well i believe uh, this is i know there's a number of Tim Greens uh, within the music world uh, but mm-hmm. this particular one uh, i believe is uh, uh, a graduate of the Monk Institute and also mm-hmm. uh, was the, at uh, jazz aspen snowmass where i was uh, for some time uh, not as a musician let me clarify that in a new york minute I, I was actually the voice of Jazz Aspen for a while, and and it was it was great to meet a number of the people that came as a part of the Monk Institute for a summer camp. So is that where you met him?
1: No, I met him in in uh, in Washington D.C. I kept going to hear him play, and I would always talk to him about records, and and he he always thought it was cool that I was really into listening to jazz, and um, we would talk about records and. And then one day I called him for a gig and we got to play. And then after that, he started calling me for gigs all over town. We'd play like weekends at Bohemian Caverns and played at Peabody and Johns Hopkins and just gigs all over, all over town. And um, he was really like an early mentor to me.
0: And then Ugana Okeguo, you have uh, played with him in conjunction with uh, some gigs that you had done with Pete Malinverney.
1: Yeah, we've been playing in Pete's Trio for, for quite some time, and uh, yeah, Ugan has become a great friend of mine from countless hours commuting to gigs together and playing all these gigs. And um, yeah, he's he was the heartbeat of the record, in my opinion. He you know he created the vibe that that it is you know from the bottom from the bottom end. And uh, yeah, Ugan is great, great musician and a great person.
0: So when you started formulating first move, uh, it was obviously not a difficult process to assemble the musicians that you wanted to record with
1: mm-hmm yeah, this was my this was my dream band and uh, you know i had I had been thinking about who I would call and uh, this is the first group of people that I put together. This is like you know my desert island jazz quintet. <laughs> And I called them and everyone was available. Within like three minutes, the whole thing was set up. It was very quick, which I thought it was gonna take a while to track everybody down, you know, cause everyone's so busy, but it was the, it was right in the heart of COVID. So it was, you know, everybody picked up the phone immediately. And uh, I was just, as soon as I, I locked everyone down, I was just thinking, please don't have another variant on the date of this, like, don't let it get canceled, you know?
0: It's either good, clean living, or you're just living the dream. That's right. (laughs) And and these guys would be anybody's uh, dream quintet uh, uh, to be a part of, uh, because they're all supreme musicians uh, in their own right. So when you started putting this all together, what was uh, the thinking or the thought process of First of all, putting it together as a an album called First Move is it because it's your first debut album as a leader?
1: Yeah. Well, also the uh, the the photos that we took at at the club where we recorded it, uh, there was there's chess pieces in them, and in the front cover there it's hard to tell, but there's chess pieces. So I was trying to sort of combine that theme. With, with the fact that, yeah, it was my, it's my first record, first, you know, my first big thing as a leader. So it's sort of like a double meaning. And yeah, because I wanted to use pictures from the event, you know, because we did it live, we recorded it live. So all the pictures were from there. And so I was just trying to connect it somehow.
0: So you recorded this at Brooklyn's Ornithology Jazz Club. Mm-hmm. Why that choice of uh, doing it live versus going into studio?
1: Well, I had a uh, I had a grant I won a grant from the New York Foundation of the Arts to do a live show, and so I just decided that I would record it. And I always really loved live recordings. I think that there's some there's a nice extra dimension to them sometimes that a studio album doesn't have. And uh, and we recorded it the way that records were made in the 50s and 60s, live to reel to reel analog tape, and uh, which was very interesting because, you know, each tape is 15 minutes long mm-hmm. and we're doing a live recording. Live, live tracks are usually like, can be 12 minutes long, you know. So we had to really time everything and make sure it worked. It was very stressful navigating the tape because, you know, I'm playing with this band. This is the most fun I've had playing music since COVID. Because, you know, and, uh, and I'm like, okay, but I have to think about how long these tracks are. It was very exciting. It, it was unbelievable. We recorded, I think, sixteen tracks, and everything came out pretty well. Everything was usable because that that band. When you play with people like that, it really lifts you up. They take you to another level, and it's hard to do it. You know, if I make a mistake, they make they make it sound good.
0: I'm impressed, first of all, that you did this in an analog mode, and then mm-hmm. on top of that, doing it live. Because, as you said, there is that pressure. And how many sets did you play or were they all first takes?
1: Everything was one and done. Yeah, we like and that was that was another interesting thing. It's like, you know, a lot of these songs I've been playing for a long time and they're important to me and I wanted to document them. But you get one one attempt and uh and that's why I put so many songs in the that's why we tried to do eight songs per set because that way I'd have options because I knew a record could be maybe 6 to 9 tracks and uh so as long as that many were usable and but there were a few tracks that actually made it on the record too where something wasn't totally right after like 20 seconds into the song so i just stopped it and restarted so it was like a live recording it was a live audience recording session but it was a it was a live show that was the only time maybe maybe two songs i restarted and and those songs ended up being so much better and i was really glad that i i did that
0: do you want to give us a hint as to maybe what one of those or both might be?
1: Sure, yeah, the first track, Brandon, when we started it it didn't it didn't come it wasn't totally right. It didn't feel that good and I I knew I couldn't live with it. I you know, I knew that something was wrong and I just had a hunch and we were we were right about in the melody. And so we so I stopped it, restarted and then it was so much better. is written by Al Foster and uh, Al is always a, a hero of mine and it's a it's a it's a funny tune you know a lot of standard jazz songs they have eight measure sections and uh, Brandon that that the first two a sections are ten measures then you have an eight measure bridge with a with a four measure vamp and then you have a nine measure final section with a vamp after that it's just this whole windy puzzle of a tune but it sounds beautiful and it's a very soulful song and i just always loved it and it's just i just think it's cool to play a tune by like one of my heroes and uh and i was so happy that that it was that was better and then also my original first move when we did the uh the musicians nailed everything because there were so many notes for everything uh you know, I, I wrote out everything because when you're recording, you know, if someone forgets to come in with the melody or anything, then you have to restart the take. And we just didn't have time for that. Also, tape is very expensive. The analog tape is very, very expensive. So you don't want to, like, waste too much of it. But so they were amazing. They, they hardly, there were almost no mistakes at all. But so on first move, one of the musicians forgot that I switched the solo order. So the first soloist didn't come in right away and they still came in and sounded great but i wanted it to just be like right off the right off the wall just like because the song i wrote it's sort of i sort of built it so you there's a nice way to get into the solo and so we restarted and it was perfect Those were the two first move in Brandon.
0: Was there anxiety uh, or a little more pressure because this was your debut as a band leader?
1: Definitely the, the 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 weeks leading up to it. I I was a I was a bit of a wreck at certain times. Yeah, it's a bit it's a big thing, and it's as you know worried like, am I going to play well enough? Am I going to sound okay? Like, is every track going to have some weird mess up? Fortunately. Like, I got there really, really early that day. I got there maybe at 1.30 or 2 p.m. I had a piano tuner there when I got there, live recording, got to tune the piano. had someone dropped off the vibes. I set up the drums, got everything right. The recording engineer came in. We took our time. And by the time the band showed up for the rehearsal, like, I'd already been there for four hours, so I felt comfortable. I was just like, this is my office. That really helps, just kind of having time, not rushing into it. Had all the music ready for them. We had a like a really beautiful rehearsal, and by the time we made the hit, I was totally ready to go. I felt felt great. There were maybe 150 people there in the audience between the two sets, and it was a really great supportive audience with friends and family and fans from all over. People I hadn't seen in years, and and so all the stuff it really added to make the make the experience and the recording what it was. It was good good vibes, yeah, for sure.
0: I'm sure the audience was fuel for the fire so to speak.
1: Mm. Uh, yeah, mean, it was it was exciting, very exciting.
0: So did you do all of the arrangements?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh I wrote I wrote out all the arrangements. A lot of them are based off arrangements that from the original recordings, but there were things that I changed or adapted and uh but yeah, I put everything together. Yeah, but so, I, like I said, some of the arrangements were stock arrangements, but we we changed things like firewalls, the Eric Dolphy recording. You know, we played it pretty much as is created this vamp for the, for Tim Green to solo over at the very end. And he, uh, and it was a really beautiful moment.
0: So another track that you did, uh, was described as being a quiet intensity and that's Jerry Allen's, uh, Unconditional Love.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: Tell us about that track.
1: So when I, I, certain songs you hear and they just kind of hit you in the gut, you know, and, uh, her, she's an incredible composer, and I only heard her play once live, but it, it, I feel like it changed my life in a way. It's just so refreshing, and, and that's how I feel about that song, Unconditional Love. It's just so, it's beautiful, and it's, it's hopeful, and it's, it's positive, and, and you know the melody's really nice, and it has these beautiful changes, and, and um, I thought it would be really fun to try to play it on the on the album. It's the only like straight eighth song of the album, you know, that's not just swing. Love. I added an extra vamp for Warren Wolf to solo over, and you know, I made I made alterations to some of the tunes that didn't change too much.
0: Hey, by the way, what was the audience reaction to the live recording in the club? What do you recall about that?
1: They loved it. It was it was really deep. I mean, a lot of the people were there because the musicians were so great, and a lot of those guys don't play in New York very often, or you don't get to see them in those venues. And people loved it. People were really thought it was really good. Everyone was telling me it was going to be a great record. And the funny thing is the room, in that room, the sound is completely different from the, how the record actually came out. And um, so it's been cool also finding out from people who were there who are listening to the record now and they're saying how, how they're how they enjoying how it sounds. And it's, it's like so interesting to hear it back after having been there, you know. And uh, it was great. It was a beautiful night. And it was great to do it there. You know, Mitch Borden owns Ornithology. He's the original owner of Smalls. So he really knows how to he and his wife Rie, they really know how to cultivate a nice scene there. It's really a beautiful place. It's it's the it's the next up and coming one of my absolute favorite clubs now. And and they let me do it there. And they, it, was, it was really nice of them and they cooked food for the band. It just was such a warm, beautiful night in in every angle, nothing bad happened. It was, it was a miracle.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, what, a, I mean, what a great memory that each time you play that recording now, you, I'm sure we'll fondly sit down and go, wow, man, what a night. That was just awesome. To have all of this in place, the, the recording method, uh, the audience, uh, the live segment versus the studio, one takes, uh, mm-hmm. you, you've you've done outstanding. Uh, you get an A plus Thank on you. this one. So, Thank you. Thank uh, you.
1: Appreciate it,
0: Aaron. Let's go ahead and talk about some of the other tracks on the album. I particularly like uh, the Eleventh Hour Mulgrew Miller's tune. Mm. Uh, you give everybody a little standout uh, there, including Warren Wolf and uh, also Tim Green, uh, besides yourself. Uh, and uh, it it just it really cooks. Tell me about that one and why that choice.
1: Uh, Well, thank you. Uh, 11th Hour. So Tim Green and Warren Wolf both played in Mulgrew's band. And at many times, I played some Mulgrew-Miller tributes with them. And that's just a really fun tune. It's just a blues, but it has a very, very unusual sort of melody. And it's an exciting tune. And I just always loved it. It's so simple, um, but you can really just really stretch on in the solos and it it has this very cool energy even though it's a blues it's it feels very open-ended and I played it with Warren and Tim so many times and I knew that they would take it that's a tune where I played that with them in the past and they always take it to the next level so I said well let's see if they if they if they bring it on this and and they did they really brought it on that track I, I like that track too
0: yeah i mean it's it's amazing uh and and you could tell everybody's totally into it there was no hesitation it was like turn me loose here i go and uh catch mm-hmm. me if you can
1: exactly yeah and sullivan actually his solo is almost all just his left hand and, and the whole audience was freaking out because he was just he eventually brings his right hand in after like two minutes of soloing but it's just his left hand and you see there's I have video footage of the thing and people's jaws are on the ground watching him. It's pretty pretty interesting.
0: So many of the tracks uh, it, it it's kind of like a great picnic basket of all mm. kinds of wonderful things inside of it uh, and some surprises and and some uh, you, you had an expectation and could hardly wait for. But one of the surprises for me was that the way you did the sound of love, Duke Ellington's uh, sound of love, that was really beautiful music.
1: Thank you very much. Yeah, that that one was fun. I that's such a beautiful song. The melody is just so so gorgeous and lush. And uh, when we when we rehearsed it, I I made sure to tell the band that I wanted I wanted it to feel like waves. Uh, the way that they play the melody, like especially towards the towards the as the melody continues, I wanted them to build the there's like cr- built in crescendos in the melody and decrescendos, and we we really brought it out and it's I really enjoyed doing that, you know, because a ballad from the drums, it's sometimes hard to really put your put something in there, but you know for on on a on a drummer's record, I, I wanted to try to make something happen with it. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad you like it. I really appreciate it.
0: And then you end up the recording on kind of an interesting note. You, you do a Charlie Parker tune, and it, it's, I guess, in true Charlie Parker fashion and expectation. Uh, it, it's it's a, an interesting choice that you made to do this particular one, and it's called uh, Clack Oviderstein, if mm-hmm. I said that right. So yeah. w- what drew you to that one?
2: Well,
1: it, yeah, it's just a really fun tune, and, and it's it's people don't play it. It's like one of the lesser known Charlie Parker tunes, and I always loved it. It's you know it's such an exciting song. It's like beautiful chord changes, and um, yeah, it's just such a such a fun tune. And I'd been playing that as well with my bands over the years, and I thought it'd be fun to put it on. But when I released it as the first single, I didn't think about the fact of how weird of a, a name for a single that would be and and so when it was the first thing that came out for the record because that came out in in march people were like what is that and uh and i I, people did some research on it it's like an onomatopoeia german joke of some sort it means something like thank you good night or something but it's just a it's a joke that charlie parker had and um also i love the arrangement there's a max roach plays this classic drum break on one of the versions of it Yeah, it's yeah, it's a nice little drum feature in a way.
0: Oh, it, and it's great. It's very high energy. There's no question about that. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it was, I thought, a good choice. How many people in the club would actually be able to say the name of that? Let alone everybody on the bandstand.
1: I know, probably almost nobody. I, it took me, I, I took me a really long time to be able to say it right. And uh, actually, I don't think I say it right at all. But I know how it's spelled, so.
0: So how would you say it?
1: I so I say Sidstein" cuz there's nice. that there's an extra s in there. But I'm sure I mean I know that's not how you actually say it, but with the with the letters I'm, you know, I'm in there and close.
0: So it's not one when you're up on the bandstand that you don't want to introduce the audience to after you've had a a a cocktail.
1: Probably not, yeah. <laughs> Sidstein. I just like slur it together.
0: Yeah, but see, but then uh, the audience would probably be right along in step with you and say, yeah, I know that song. Yeah, clock <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah, so, it's a funny
2: name.
0: So do you think if you got into the club again and uh, were asked to recreate this, uh, uh, would, do you think you might be able to do it again? Or is it like most things where if you do a set at 730 and then another one at 930, they're going to sound different?
1: Yeah, well, it's a good question. It's not gonna last with us forever. It was just it was just a gig. And it was cool and I feel like we were able to, you know, take some of those songs to a new place, sort of take it to the next level. And uh and I have a few more of the release shows next month and, and uh I think it changes a little bit every time. But uh I don't think we'll ever recreate that exact vibe that we created on October nineteenth. And I think that's kinda why we record. Because you document, it's like a history. It's a it's a audio photo, you know. And um, from there, we just have to move on and and keep developing and fi- get to the next level to to make the second move.
0: So yeah, there you go. Uh, mm-hmm. Will that be the? Is that one already underway? And you're not? Is that what you're alluding to, Mister? No, no. <laughs>
1: and it will not be called second move <laughs> or the next move.
0: Yeah, they uh,
1: But. But, yeah, no, I'm I'm going to give it a little bit. I, I'd like to record it maybe in the next few years again. Keep keep recording.
0: I wanted to ask you about your association with Seller Music Group. Uh, are you familiar with that because of Corey Weeds, or what drew you to Seller Music?
1: Yeah, Corey Weeds. I You know, I called Corey. Corey's a friend of mine, and uh, we met through this great saxophone player. I called Corey to talk to him about the record. I said, "I'm doing a live recording." I told him what it was, what it was, who was on it. And I said, "Do you have any advice for me?" And he gave me some great advice. And then he told me, "And if you want, we'll put it on my label." And I didn't expect that. And I was just like, "This guy knows a lot about recording." And uh, I said, "Great, that sounds great." And we talked about it. And he showed me what that meant and what they would do. And it was great because i had no idea what i was doing and they just take care of everything and they did a really good job and they did a great job i think with the album artwork and putting it out getting it out on playlists you know they work with law reserve who who does the digital distribution and it's just it's just a whole thing they have the radio promotion
2: mm-hmm. and
1: they have a publicist it's really cool to watch this happen it's cool to have people call me and say hey i'm in arizona and i just heard a song played on FM radio in Arizona. And that's because of seller live. And that's, that's very cool.
0: They do a great job. And Corey is, uh, he's, he's top rate. He's, he's, uh, in a class by himself. And, mm-hmm. uh, Hey, you know, he'd be a great fill in for Tim green. If you wanted to do some of this album.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. He's a fantastic player. I love his playing and we've gotten to play a few times together and, yeah I look forward to more.
0: and uh, speaking of a great fill-in, you have that opportunity. If you need a great pianist, you could do Pete Malinverney to uh, jump up on the stand with you.
1: exactly yeah i i hope to I hope to have him. He's played my music before too, and pete's Pete's just fantastic. He's one of my favorite musicians and people, and playing with him is is uh, is always incredible to me.
0: Well, you have an upcoming gig with him in July at Mesros.
1: That's right. Yeah, we play a lot. We and we're we're playing. We played a few times this week, and Pete's Pete's one of the probably the person I work with the most in his in his group, and I feel very fortunate to to have a lot of stuff happening with him.
0: Well, Aaron, you've done a great job in putting out this first uh, move for yourself. No pun intended on that word, <laughs> uh, but it, it's truly uh, an outstanding recording. And I'm sure you're quite proud of it.
1: thank you. thank you. yeah. i'm I'm really I think it came out well, and i i'm I'm very proud of it, and I'm also very uh, aware of the things that I want to do to to improve for the future, to keep making better and better music. And uh, yes, yeah, this is an incredible experience for me.
0: Lastly, how could our listeners learn more about you? Well, I
1: suppose they can go to my website. I'm probably most active on social media on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram handle is just Aaron Sieber, and I post all my gigs and shows. And I'd say that that, and then maybe Facebook. Those are those are the two best ways to stay connected with me and see what see what I have coming up.
0: And of course, uh, your last name Sieber, is S E E B E R.
1: Exactly. Just Mm -hmm. just to make sure when you're doing
0: that internet uh, search, go. oh, I can't find this guy.
1: I know. Some people think it's the letter C and then (laughs) B-E-R. Yeah, there you go. I like that.
0: Hey, listen, Aaron, I I can't tell you what a treat it's been uh, talking with you today and learning more about your first release called First Move and much success to you in the future and all that you do.
1: Thank you so much, Alan. I really appreciate you having me on, and I look forward to hearing the, uh, the rest
0: when it comes out. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with drummer, band leader, and educator Aaron Sieber. We'd like to
2: thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us
0: again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz.
2: If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.